So, turning to the book of Jonah, we are in our second week of this series. And last week, we saw that Jonah is a prophet of God who is given a mission, and he completely just runs away from that mission. And yet God pursues him in that. God upsets his escape plans with such intensity that Jonah ends up in the sea. As a, once I heard a pastor once say, if you're going to run from God, bring a life jacket. This week, we are turning to perhaps the most well-known part of the story, Jonah in the belly of the fish. So one of the questions is always asked, what kind of fish swallowed Jonah? Well, we don't really know. The Hebrew word translated fish there is used often just for this generic sense of fish. It can also be used to just talk about this, just an aquatic animal. And so we don't really know what kind of fish. It says it's a great fish, and so this idea that it is big, but that's all that we're told. It's common to hear people say a whale, because I think that's the most uh, common example that we can, can sort of conceive as, okay, what kind of fish could actually swallow a man? Okay, a whale. So we often hear a whale, but we don't know exactly the type of fish. Mindy and I and the Schmidt family are convinced it was a giant catfish. So you can you know, just conceive whatever kind of fish you want. It was large, and it swallowed Jonah. But more important than what kind of fish is this question. What purpose of the fish. Why does God appoint a fish to swallow Jonah in the first place? Well, first, this fish represents salvation. God sends this fish as an act of mercy to save Jonah from drowning. And if you think about it, this event doesn't become as crazy as it would appear. Because where is Jonah? He's in the sea. And so if God is going to use the most natural surroundings and most natural vehicle to rescue Jonah out of the sea, what would he send? A fish. So God is working with the, the, the natural order to save Jonah. Now, it is definitely miraculous. Make no mistake. But it's not irrational. It, it makes a lot of sense that God would use nature to save Jonah here. So the fish, first, is a means of salvation. But second, the fish provides an opportunity for instruction and discipleship for Jonah. You see, inside the fish, Jonah's world sort of comes to this standstill. See, up until this point, there's just been a flurry of activity. Jonah getting a commission, then he runs from from God, and then he gets on a ship, and then there's a storm, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and then Jonah gets thrown overboard, so it's just action, action, action. And now it's like the world has come to a standstill, and here's Jonah alone with God inside this fish, and he's going to have this moment of reflection, contemplation. Jonah is going to consider his own heart and the character of God. We can say in the belly of the fish, Jonah has this experience with mercy. So God's mercy and his grace become real to him in a really powerful and profound way. And this experience with mercy is absolutely important for Jonah. Because before he can go to Nineveh, which Remember last week we said was one of the most brutal empires of the ancient world. Before he can go to this kind of people to proclaim mercy and repentance and salvation, Jonah first has to have an experience himself. Jonah first needs to experience the depths of the mercy and the grace of God before he's going to go on this incredible mission. He first needs to taste for himself the life-giving mercy of God that transforms rebellious sinners and reluctant missionaries into faithful followers of God. And so Jonah is experiencing the very thing that he is called to proclaim. 
Before Jonah could proclaim God's mercy, he first needed to experience God's mercy. And as I said last week, Jonah holds up a mirror to us. I mean, could it be that we are so reluctant to share the gospel and go and make disciples? Could it be that we're so reluctant to proclaim the mercy of God because we're not experiencing the mercy of God ourselves? We're not drinking deeply from that life-giving well of God's mercy and his grace. Like, how can we ever expect to give our lives to something that we're not experiencing? And so Jonah shows us that we also need an experience of God's mercy if we're going to give our lives to proclaiming the mercy of God. Look, if you'll pardon the expression here, we need to be smoking what we're selling. Some of you are like, what did he just say? I actually wanted to title this sermon, Smoke What You Sell, but I thought that'd be a little weird to put on our website. People would be like, what is going on at First City Church? But the principle is, is we need to be experiencing, living, encountering the very message that we are to proclaim to the world. Mercy can't just be some abstract thing. Grace and repentance can't be some abstract thing that we just talk about. It needs to be something we're actually experiencing for ourselves. And so this is what we're going to see in this chapter of Jonah. What Jonah shows us, and this is really the main idea for this morning, to faithfully proclaim God's mercy, you must experience God's mercy. And so I want to break this down into three points for us. The need for mercy, the provision of mercy, and then the proclamation of mercy. So let's get into the need for mercy. We don't know how long Jonah was struggling in the water. I mean, you can typically swim in water for a while. So we don't know how long he was there, but he was there and then this fish comes and swallows him. And inside the fish, we get this prayer that's spelled out and written out for us in beautiful Hebrew poetry. Jonah uses very vivid imagery to show us his desperate condition and his need for mercy. So this is where he starts in verse two. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. So Jonah makes this reference to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. This is the place that all go, righteous and unrighteous. As the Old Testament tells us, this is just the place of the dead. So it would be wrong to associate Sheol with hell. And Sheol is conceived as being down in the center or the belly of the earth. And so when there's reference points to Sheol in the Old Testament, it's always talking about going down. And so this is why Jonah describes it this way in verse 6, that he's going down to the roots of the mountains. He went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. So where if we think of mountains having roots, where would those roots be? Deep inside the earth. Sheol is also described in scripture as a pit, a pit that we can fall into. It's a place that no one can avoid and no one can escape from. The bars of death close around us forever. A shield can also carry some connotations of judgment because we see many times in the Old Testament, physical death is a form of judgment for sin. And so Sheol, there is separation from life. Like our voices, our lives are silenced. And Sheol, we're removed from the presence of loved ones. It's a lonely, quiet, desolate place. Now Jonah didn't literally die because we know he was rescued by this fish. But Jonah knows when he goes into that water, he's as good as dead. Jonah's expectation is that I'm going into this water and I'm going to die. 
And so Jonah can feel the grip of death surrounding him. He can feel the bars of Sheol closing in around him. And so he is having this experience, though he doesn't literally die, everything in his mind, in his heart, in his body, everything that he's experiencing is this expectation, I'm sinking down into Sheol. He recognizes that he needs to be rescued, he needs an experience of mercy, or he's done. And so in addition to using this imagery of Sheol and talking about sinking down into Sheol, Jonah also uses very vivid water imagery. This is what he declares. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. The waters closed in over to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. God, you cast me into the sea. And the flood and the water came crashing down. It swallowed me up. And the water consumed. Jonah felt as if everything was just becoming water. Entirely subsumed in this, these waves and in the crashing flood. And then he talks about being driven away from the presence of God. He feels like this water is just violently and forcefully taking him out of the presence of God. Which is very interesting because what did it say at the beginning of Jonah? He was running from the presence of God. And so it's like, be careful what you wish for. In that moment, Jonah's probably thinking, oh great, this is what I get for running from God. Now I'm being driven out from God's presence. Now, that Jonah uses water imagery to describe what is happening to him makes complete sense, right? He just got thrown into the sea. There was a storm. He's drowning. He's sinking. But there's more going on here than just Jonah describing his surroundings. You see, in Scripture, the sea is used symbolically to talk about chaos and disaster and evil and judgment, The sea has very vivid symbolism in scripture. And so Jonah is trying to use language to describe just how desperate his condition is. In the book of Genesis, if you read the creation accounts, it talks about the earth being formless and void and there's darkness over the face of the deep and the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So this picture here of the the darkness over the deep and the waters and the earth being formless and void is this picture of chaos, of disordered material. And then God brings order to the chaos. And the sea sort of represents that chaos. And then God says, sea, you're going to go here. Land is going to be here. I'm going to create boundary. I'm going to create order. And then in the flood, here's what's fascinating about the flood. The flood is judgment. So here we see water, the seas being used for judgment. But what you see in the language in that passage is that God is opening up the seas and opening up the deeps. He's undoing that order that he did at creation. So the flood is actually this decreative act. It's as if God is saying, the boundaries that I set, the order that I set, I'm removing them. And boom, chaos, disaster, judgment come flowing onto the earth. And so the seas represent judgment. When God saves Israel, they pass through the Red Sea. This is passing through evil and chaos and disaster. God's leading them through that. He's he's leading them through judgment. And then what happens when Egypt walks through? Boom, all of that chaos and disaster and evil and judgment on top of them. And so the seas represent chaos and judgment and disaster and evil. Revelation 21.1 has this very interesting detail. It tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more sea. 
But does that mean there's going to be no water? No, it says that there's a river running through the new, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. So there's water present. What does this mean? It's a beautiful picture of the reality that in the new heavens and the new earth, no more chaos, no more disaster, no more evil, no more judgment. Harmony, peace, righteousness, flourishing. And so Jonah is pulling on the most vivid language, the most symbolic language that he can to describe what is happening him, to him. And so taken together, here's what we get. We get Jonah experiencing this moment of death. He's, he is faced with death. He is faced with the consequences of his actions. He's faced with knowing what he deserves. And he's experiencing chaos and disaster and judgment swirling all around him. And he's caught up in this moment. And he recognizes he needs mercy. There is no hope for him. He is completely out of his depth, literally and spiritually. Disaster surrounds him. Evil surrounds him. Judgment surrounds him. Chaos surrounds him. And he's utterly helpless. Now, friends, this is us. We should, we should not miss that what is being described and what Jonah is experiencing on a physical level here and even spiritually is us. Like if you consider our world and the, the, what we walk in, this is our experience as well. If you just consider kind of throughout the world and in our culture, yes, in many ways we live in comfort. In many ways we have it good. But if you look at the world around us, if you, if you peer past the veneer of comfort and stability, you will see there is chaos. There is disaster. There is evil. There is wickedness. There is pain and suffering. And look, our politics, our education, our technology, for all the things that we bring to the table, we're not fixing the problem. It's not getting any better. Yeah, we may fix one problem over here, but something else over, shoots up over here. And then we fix this problem over here, but then there's a problem over here. We're no closer to being a more just society, a more whole society, a less broken society than we were back in Genesis 3. So there is chaos and disaster and evil all around us. And then personally, personally, we, we have these experiences where life feels chaotic, where it feels as if disaster and evil and the consequences of sin are just swirling around you and you feel like they're threatening to swallow you. You may feel like the flood is all around you and there's nothing you can do. For you, life really is lived-in experience. Like, this is chaotic. This is painful. This is suffering. There's evil all around me. And no matter what I do, I can't seem to slip its grasp. I can't seem to get away from it. I don't know what your circumstances are, but I know how desperate that can feel feeling completely helpless to remove yourself from pain and evil and chaotic forces swirling around you. Now, you may not feel circumstantially that your situation is that dire, but spiritually, apart from Christ, no matter how good your circumstances are on the outside, we're all drowning in chaos and disaster we're all overtaken by selfishness and pride and sin. We're all deserving of judgment and we're all headed for death. So any way you slice this, man, we're Jonah. 
We, we, we are in the same circumstances as Jonah. Completely overwhelmed, completely unable to save ourselves, completely in need of mercy. And on our own, the fact that we're helpless to overcome the chaos and the disaster and the evil of our world leaves us with a decision to make. We either need to acknowledge this, we either need to admit that this is our condition, or we can spend a lot of time trying to push it back on our own. We can spend a lot of time trying to live in denial. Like, look, if you're disconnected from the fact that you are in complete need for mercy, if you're disconnected from that pain, disconnected from that sense of chaos and brokenness and helplessness, if you don't feel your need for mercy, then let me ask you, why are you bearing the pain? Because you know it's there. Why are you bearing the pain? Why are you living in denial? Why are you trying to deal with it on your own? See, my guess is this. My guess is, if in trying to deal with all of that on your own, you're slipping into a lot of pride and self-righteousness, you're probably exerting a lot of anxious energy to try to control your world, or you're feeling completely exhausted and you're feeling like a failure. You're feeling like there's no, nothing that I can do. No matter how much I try, it keeps falling apart. Like, there's the only two options for us when we try to do things on our own. We, we swing into pride and self-righteousness, and I got this, and I can just be good enough to do it on my own, or we swing into despair because we recognize we can't. And those are two ways of dealing with it, and in all of that, all we end up doing is just burying the pain, burying the fact that we are in desperate need of mercy. How does that leave you feeling? Perhaps like someone trying to dog paddle in the middle of a hurricane? And look, even for those of you who are in Jesus, those of you who follow Christ, you're disciples of Jesus, you want to follow Jesus faithfully, you want to be on mission. Look, how often is this us too? How often are we not living on mission, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, giving our lives so that others may know Jesus because we're too busy trying to control our lives and control our circumstances rather than crying out for the mercy of God. We're we're too busy trying to deny that we need mercy. We're too busy trying to live our lives as if we're not completely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. And in all of that energy and activity, what gets left on the side is actually the thing God has called you to. The thing that most gives you life, the thing that most gives you purpose. We are Jonah drowning in need of mercy. We are in dire, absolute need of mercy. And the good news for us here is that we see a provision of mercy. See, overtaken by his need, Jonah cries out to God, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, and you heard my voice. See, Jonah cries out to the Lord. He acknowledges that the Lord alone can save. Like, I can't do this. He's, he's aware. I can't swim enough. I'm not strong enough to pull myself out of these circumstances. He cries out to God. He says, the Lord alone can save. And here's how God responds. God doesn't say, hey, get yourself to shore, then we'll talk. Or, hey, this is what you get for running from me. You made your bed, lie in it. No, God hears him. Out of the distress, Jonah calls, and God hears him. 
Here's how Jonah describes it. Remember he said he cries out from the belly of Sheol and he said his prayer reaches the very temple of God. It's talking about the presence of God. And so there's this great sort of uh, geography happening. Jonah is in the furthest reaches down and his prayer goes all the way up to the furthest reaches on high to God's presence. God hears him down in the pit. God hears him at his worst. God rescues him at his worst. This is who God is. God is faithful. God is gracious. God is merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. God saves. He's eager to save. He wants to save. He is full of mercy for you. When you cry out in your distress, when you cry out in your despair, when you cry out in your despondency and in your weakness and the end of your rope, God hears you. God hasn't stiff-armed you. God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't left you on your own. God hasn't turned a deaf ear to you. No, God hears and he's ready to save. He is ready to pull you out of the pits. Here's what Jonah says. You brought my, up my life from the pits. Oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now Jonah cries out. And this is our hope too, friends. That God is merciful. God is eager to save. God is ready to save. So what's keeping you from crying out? What's keeping you from asking God for his mercy? What's keeping you from turning from whatever it is that you're trying to do in the midst of your brokenness and turning to God? Because that's the issue. That's the problem that's before us. The problem isn't that God lacks mercy. The problem that isn't, isn't that God isn't powerful enough to save. The problem isn't that God's mercy is only this deep. No, the problem is actually our hearts and the fact that we turn to other things. Here's what Jonah recognizes in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So this word pay regard in the Hebrew literally means this, to keep watch over, to guard, to, to care for and protect something you dearly love. This is the same verb that we find in number 624 where, the, where Aaron says, the high priest says, the Lord bless you and keep you. So if we're holding on to idols in this sort of, I'm, I'm going to guard this and protect it and I'm going to watch over it, it is, it is important to me, something I dearly love. What Jonah says is when we hold on to idols and other, other things like that, what we end up doing is we forsake our hope in the steadfast love of God. You see, your idolatry is going to keep you from experiencing the mercy of God. And here's what's going on here. This is what, this is what Jonah is recognizing. So there's some cultural commentary that Jonah is making here. Because when Jonah was alive, he was a part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and I talked about this a little bit last week. So the northern kingdom was always given over to sin. Like their rulers were always wicked. The people were constantly worshiping false gods. Their, their hope was in their political power and their military might. So they were given over to idols. They were given over to find hope in other things. And Jonah lived in this culture. Jonah was a part of this society, and he was being shaped by it. And so when, when Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, and, and Assyria was Israel's like arch enemy, 
Jonah's called to go to the arch enemy of his nation and go proclaim repentance. He doesn't want to do it. Why? Because his heart had not been shaped in mercy. His heart was being shaped by idols. His heart was being shaped in finding hope in other things. His heart wasn't being shaped in the mercy and the grace and the love and the goodness and the holiness of God. He didn't want to proclaim mercy because he was not experiencing God's mercy. And so his culture had shaped him to chase after idols rather than run after the mercy of God. And let's not be naive to think that we're not the same. How often does our culture shape us to chase after idols, to chase after and put our hope in other things rather than the mercy and the grace of God? And so let me ask you this, what is it? What is it that you most put your hope in? What is it that you believe can fix what is broken in the world and broken in you? What is it that you hold so tightly to, that you guard and protect with your all, that because you believe if you lose it, then your world will be chaos? If you lose it, life will become full of disaster and evil. If you lose it, maybe even death. What is the thing that you're gripping so tightly because you think this is the thing that will save me? This is the thing that will give my life meaning and purpose. Look, if that thing is not the Lord then you're giving your heart over to idols. Yeah, you you may say, oh, I don't worship false gods. I don't bow down before statues. It doesn't matter. Whatever most has your heart is your God. And if it is not the true living God, then you have given it over to an idol. You've given it over to something, something else. And here's the thing about idols. They aren't merciful. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, hear this. Idols aren't merciful. Idols exact a toll on you. Idols demand from you. Idols say, keep giving and keep giving and keep guarding and keep protecting. You need to bring yourself and all this anxious energy to keep this idol from being removed or harmed. Like, look, if it's money that's your idol, look, there's not enough money in the world that you can make. And so you have to keep making more and keep making more and keep making more. That idol demands a toll on you. If it's security, well, then you're never secure enough. And so you have to keep building more and more and more security. If it's a particular relationship, then you have to keep giving more and more and more to that relationship until it becomes this codependent, destructive back and forth. Perhaps you, you, you've poured out into maybe whether it is your marriage or your, your kids or your job. I don't know. Whatever it is, understand that you'll never be able to give that idol enough of yourself. It'll keep exacting a toll. And then when you mess up, it demands payback. It demands that you fill that void, fill that gap with more work and more effort. Idols aren't merciful. They will not save you. And in all of that activity, you turn from actual mercy, actual grace, freely given to you, lovingly poured out to you. Not something you have to earn. And not something that you have to perform to get God to give you. No. Something God freely gives to you. God lovingly gives to you. And so, let your pain speak to you for a bit here. 
listen to the pain in, in, the, in the areas where you recognize you're in need of mercy and where you're trying to fill that void yourself and, and fix those things yourself. Listen to the pain that that is causing. Because as we learned last week, God so often blows up our world. He, he, he pursues us and tries to get our attention through our pain and through the mess and through the chaos. He's calling you to, to let go of your idols and to cry out for mercy and cry out for grace and salvation. And so often we need a wake-up call. Look, Jonah had to get thrown into a sea and cold water has a way of waking you up. And so God is upsetting your world because he's after you. He's pursuing you. He's trying to remove your grip on that idol and so you will turn to him and find mercy in him. So listen to your pain. Be like Jonah. Turn from those idols. Recognize that they are vain and worthless. And cry out as Jonah says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. He's talking about worshiping God. What I have vowed, I will pay. I'm going to follow you, God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's Jonah sitting in the belly of the fish saying, I'm done with these idols. I'm done with political idolatry. I'm done with military idolatry. I'm done with cultural idolatry. I'm done with trying to build security in other things. I'm done trying to fix what's broken in myself by filling it with more money or working harder or being a good moral person. I'm done trying to fix all the things I can't fix. And I'm going to cry out to God. I'm going to cry out for his mercy. I'm going to recognize salvation alone belongs to God. And so he turns from these idols. And here's this beautiful picture for us of repentance. Here's this beautiful picture of turning from things that are empty and vain and do not save and do not fulfill to true salvation and to true mercy. And so here, here's the hope that we have in the steadfast love of God. When, when we turn from our sin, when we repent of our idols and we turn to God and receive his mercy and grace, there's our salvation. There's our hope. God pours out his love upon us. And, and hear me on this. Repentance is different than just merely acknowledging you're broken and you're a mess. Like, like our culture is really good at that. I'm just going to be authentic. I'm going to just put my mess out there. I mean, it's really, it's really cool now. It's, it's actually culturally acceptable to just say, hey, look how messy and broken I am. Let me speak my truth and let everybody know what's going on. But that isn't repentance. Certainly that's important. Confessing is certainly important. But repentance is turning away from those things and turning to God. Turning away from idols and turning, turning to God. It's turning away from the brokenness and the ways that you're making a mess and trying to fix things on your own. And it's turning to the only one who can save you and the mercy that you need. And so Jonah isn't just going, yeah, I messed up here. Man, I made a mess and now I'm in the belly of a fish. Look how terrible this is. Gets on, gets on Facebook and starts typing it out. Man, let me just tell you about this experience. Let me tell you about how broken I am. Let me tell you about how miserable I am. Man, this has been terrible. No, he's like, I'm turning from these vain things. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to follow God. God is a God that saves. And so I'm going to run after him. I'm going to cry out to him. I'm going to run to his mercy. That's what Jonah is doing. That's what we're called to do. And here's the beauty 
in all of this. You see, God, all throughout the pages of Scripture, you see in the Old Testament, God repeatedly tells his people, I'm going to save you. When you go through the flood, I'm going to be with you. When you go through chaos and evil and disaster, I'm going to be with you. Over and over and over, he promises this. And then we come to the New Testament and all of those promises fulfilled in the most beautiful and powerful way in Jesus Christ. So here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the power of the gospel that Jesus Christ steps from heaven. God made flesh into our brokenness, into our chaos, into our disaster, into our evil. And then Jesus takes the judgment that we, you and I deserve. He, he goes under the flood in the waters of God's judgment. He says he's going to be baptized with the baptism. That is his death. Jesus goes to the place of Sheol. He is forsaken by God, cast out by God for you and me. He takes the judgment of sin that you and I deserved on himself. He sinks down. He is overwhelmed. The the floods consume him. All of God's wrath and judgment put on him for you and me. But then God rescues him. God pulls him up out of the pits, pulls him out of the grave, resurrects him. And in resurrection power, Jesus brings salvation. Jesus brings restoration. Jesus brings healing. Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus brings mercy. And here's the beautiful truth for you and I who are in Christ. Now when we face the flood, now when we face chaos, now when we face evil, Jesus is with us. Jesus went through the waters so that you and I would never have to face the judgment of God. He went through the waters so that he can defeat them for us. See, the promises of God to be merciful to you are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so to follow God, to turn from your sin, to turn from your idols is to turn to Christ in the salvation that he holds out for you, the hope that he holds out for you, the power that he gives you through his spirit. And here's what we're waiting for, him to return. And the mercy that he started will be fully realized when as we see in Revelation 21, chaos, evil, wickedness, no more. Christ is returning to do that in us and that in his creation. This is the truth. This is the reality that we live in, church. This is what God holds out for us, his powerful mercy and salvation in Christ. And so if we've experienced that, if we've turned from our sin, if we've run to God for mercy and grace, how would we not proclaim this? Would we not celebrate this? I mean, this is what Jonah experienced. So Jonah experiences salvation belongs to the Lord. See, verse 9 is this beautiful summation of the book of Jonah, but really the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah has experienced that in a rich and deep and powerful way. And so now this is proclamation. This isn't Jonah just going, oh, this is true. No, he's proclaiming this. And as we're going to see next week, that experience of mercy carries him to Nineveh to go and proclaim salvation and repentance to Assyria. This message of salvation and mercy becomes the message that Jonah carries because he experiences it. And look, church, evangelism isn't that hard. You evangelize things all the time. The things that you get fired up about, your, your favorite food, your favorite sports team, your favorite band, 
your favorite political party, your favorite movie star, I don't know, some, anything that you are excited about, you evangelize. You tell other people about it and you talk about it with passion. Why? Because you've experienced that thing and that thing has done something in your heart that causes you to go and tell other people about it. So in that sense, evangelism isn't hard. Now, making disciples is hard, but evangelism isn't. And what we see when something grips our heart, we're going to proclaim it. Something is transforming our lives, we're going to proclaim it. And so I want to encourage you, church, drink deeply from the mercy of God. Drink deeply from his grace. Drink deeply from his salvation in order that you may proclaim the gospel. Drink deeply from what God provides in Jesus Christ that you may go and proclaim that to others and make disciples. We have to ask ourselves if we're not sharing the gospel and living on mission and giving our lives that others might know Christ, we need to ask this question, how deeply am I experiencing God for myself? How deeply am I drinking from the mercy that he has poured out on me? I want us to be a church that knows the mercy of God up close and personal. I want us to be a church that celebrates the mercy of God. Lives transformed. Brokenness redeemed. Watching God sustain us through trial, through chaos, through disaster. Watching sins be forgiven. Repentance taking place. Jesus being glorified and celebrated. Marriages being transformed. Rebellious hearts being softened. People who once hated God now proclaiming the greatness and glory of Jesus. Like that kind of culture, church, will carry us into this world will carry us with a message on our lips and love in our hands. And so let's drink deeply of the mercy and the greatness of God because salvation belongs to our Lord. Amen.